Worthy women. We're in the book of Esther tonight. You can turn there in your Bibles if you have them. Book of Esther. I'm excited for this series. Two weeks just talking about a couple women in the Bible. I, I love when the Bible mentions women. It's, we, whenever the Bible mentions a woman, we should pay attention. And here's why. Because in the culture that the Bible was written, and, and in the world of what, what we call the ancient Near East, which is just kind of Israel, Syria, Egypt, kind of the place where the Bible happened, in that culture and in that day and age, women were not as much a part of society as they are today. So, so women were very much second-class citizens. And so they were very rarely mentioned in history. They are very rarely talked about. When we look back at, at important events, you very rarely hear the name of a woman. Even when you read the Bible, the Bible is in some ways a product of its time, and we very rarely hear about women in the Bible. And so when the Bible talks about a woman, when the Bible talks about women's issues and addresses, especially stories like Esther or Ruth that we'll talk about next week, this entire story where the main character is a woman, we should pay attention because the Bible is saying something very significant to women and about women in those books. So I'm excited for this series. I'm excited to, to, to dig in and dive in. Here is where I'm going tonight. I just want to put my outline in front of you. Esther's worthiness... We're talking about worthy women. Esther's worthiness for the position that God has called her to is determined by God, not by her, not by her culture, and not by the people around her. This, this is where we're going tonight. Esther's worthiness for the position that God gives her is not determined by her, by her culture, or the people around her. It is determined by God. The book of Esther, I, I think, is one of the best stories in the Bible, in terms of just pure kind of kind of literature, reading a story, the book of Esther is so fun to read. I read through it probably three or four times today as I was studying and just trying to figure out which direction to go, what to talk about. If you haven't read the book of Esther, I would just encourage you to read it. It is fascinating. There are so many things going on. Anything you could want from a book or from a story, Esther has it. Romantic interest, political intrigue and subplots, people dying, people getting honored, people getting promoted, all kinds of incredible stuff. Literally years of just kind of strife and intergenerational conflict all culminating in this point. It's such a fun story. The Bible is more than just a, a, a textbook or a theology book. The Bible is a storybook. The Bible tells us some awesome fun stories. The book of Esther is just one of those fun stories. I don't have time to read the whole book tonight. I don't have time to give you all the key details and moments of Esther tonight. What I want to do is I want to in just a couple minutes, summarize the story of Esther. You can read it on your own if you feel like we're missing some things. That's because we are. I can't get all the details in. But here's the story of Esther in short. The story of Esther takes place against the backdrop of the empire of Persia. This is roughly, uh, probably a hundred years after the events of Gods and Kings, our, our last series we kind of went through, uh, about a hundred years after Israel and Judah collapsed. This is where the, the story of Esther takes place in the nation of Persia. God's people, the Jews, are in exile in this foreign nation. The king on the Persian throne is named Ahasuerus. You can say that, Ahasuerus. <laughs> yeah, God bless you. It's all, he's, he's also known as Xerxes. So I, can you guess which name I'm going to use? Ahasuerus, because I'm ridiculous just like that. But he's also known as Xerxes. They appear interchangeably, one's Greek, one's Hebrew. King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, wants to show off his queen at a banquet. He throws this massive feast. 
His queen's name is Vashti, and he wants Queen Vashti to come out before all these gathered officials and, and, and kind of this, this public display, and he wants to show off her beauty. He wants to show off her, 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 her greatness. She is his trophy wife, and he is going to show off that he has the best woman in all the land. Women are considered property in this society, and so he's showing, hey, look how good of stuff I own. Look how good I am. Look how great I am. I have this beautiful woman. He wants to show her off to all the people here. The queen refuses. She doesn't want to be an object. Um, and a woman said, amen. The queen refuses, and she is deposed from her position, uh, very quickly removed, and, and the position is vacant, vacant. Gosh. Position is vacant. King Xerxes wants nothing to do with her. The, and so, but, but he does still want a king, a queen. He needs someone next to him. He needs someone to rule with him. And so he goes to all the beautiful women of the land, kind of gathers them all, collects them all together into his harem, and he wants to find a new queen. One by one, he calls the women into him. Each night they have one night with the king. If you've seen that movie, you may kind of understand the story of Esther. Every woman gets, gets kind of a night. Esther comes in one night. Esther is a Jew. She's one of God's people. And she just emerges in this story as the best of all the women. She is the most beautiful. She is the most fine. She is the most uh, pleasing. Um, and she becomes the new queen. No one knows she's a Jew. She keeps this kind of on the DL. But she is queen on the throne next to Xerxes. She has a cousin named Mordecai, who's also a Jew. He has been kind of her caretaker over the last few years. Her parents died when she was young, and so her cousin Mordecai, who's many years older than her, has kind of taken her under his wing as a, a daughter of sorts and, and has provided for her and cared for her. He is a member of the king's court. He saves the king's life, and, and it's this really dramatic thing. And he also offends in the process, he offends an important official in the land. That official's name is Haman. Haman becomes very offended with Mordecai because Mordecai will bow to him. It's, it's kind of a, a big deal. Turns out Haman is an Agagite. You may not recognize that name, but King Agag existed during the time of King Saul. King Saul was commanded to kill these people. He disobeyed the Lord. He took them for himself and he left one person alive. From all these people. Wouldn't you know it, that person was Haman's great, 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 great grandmother. And now Haman, so many generations later, is now face to face with a member of the same family that killed his great, 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 great granddaddy. And now he's upset. He wants Mordecai dead. But he doesn't just want Mordecai dead. He wants the entire Jewish nation dead. And so he begins this plot to kill off all of the Jewish people all the Jews in Persia. Only Esther's the one who's able to stop him because she's in the court. She has the king's ear. She's a Jew, but no one knows. It's this perfect opportunity. She goes before the king, which is this incredibly dangerous thing. She could lose her life if, if the king doesn't extend his scepter and accept her into the court. And she invites the king and Haman to two dinners. In the course of these dinners at the last one, she reveals kind of this in, in this dramatic fashion, oh king, I am a Jew. Haman wants to kill my people. The king's pissed off because Esther is the most beautiful woman on all the land and he doesn't want no one messing with his queen and he has Haman killed. The story ends. All the Jews are saved. It's this great ending. This is the story of Esther. You should read it on your own. There's so many more details. It's so much more dramatic and better than I was able to present it as. Maybe the best story ever. But, but what I want to address tonight, the, the question I, that I want to ask and that we want to strive together to answer is uh, where does worthiness come from? 
Where does worthiness come from? We're talking about these worthy women. And, and, and I just want to examine in the life of Esther and, and in my life and in your life, how are we determined worthy? This word worthy is, is one that we use a lot in, in our worship songs, but it's not something that comes up in, in common vernacular. The idea of worthiness is just something that has worth, something that has value and importance. Where does your worth come from? Where does your value come from? Our world and our culture will tell you three lies about where our worthiness comes from. And I want to address those lies. The first lie that, that our culture will tell us is our, our culture will say that, that worthiness comes from yourself. You can have personal worthiness. The, and, and the lie, I think each of these lies has a sort of command with them. The society says you must do this in order to be worthy, in order to be important, in order to be valuable. Personal worthiness, the, the, our culture tells us you must be successful. If you want to be a worthy person, you must be successful. This is a lie our, our culture tells us. And, and right off the bat, I struggle to find just the right word to fit in this blank because the idea here that, that our culture has, it's, it's bigger than success. It, it's bigger than just being kind of a, a powerful or significant person. It, it's kind of the idea that, that our world presents this idea that if you want to be worthy, if you want to be valuable, you have to have a put-together life. You have to have a life that is Instagram-ready that is social media perfect. Every word you say needs to be a great tweet that fits into 240 characters. Every picture you take ha has to be gorgeous with, with the lighting just right and, and the angle just so. Every event, every meal you have has to be able to be put on Instagram. It has to be this gorgeous plate. Every moment that you have with your family has to be something that you can brag about to your coworkers and your friends. Our world tells us that, that the meaning of worthiness is that it's put together perfect life. You just have to be pretty or smart enough. If you have the right looks, you can do anything. You can accomplish anything. If you'll work hard enough, and if you'll just apply yourself and study and get two or three degrees, you can be all that you need to be. I, I, there, there's, there's a sort of American hard work ethos, which, which says, if you'll just try harder and, and sleep less and stop taking vacations, then you'll be this worthy person who's able to achieve all your dreams. In fact, even Elon Musk says that, that vacations are going to kill you. Interesting. This, this is what our culture says. Worthiness needs to come from, from, from how hard you try, how hard you put yourself together. This is our culture. And, and we naturally read through this lens. In Esther chapter 2, when, when, when we read about Esther's story, she's climbing the ladder, so to speak. She's climbing the ranks within the court. She's moving from one harem to the next, becoming more and more favored. And we see a word appear over and again within the text. And you can read this for yourself. In Esther chapter 2, we, we'll see this word, Esther found favor. Esther found favor. And as Esther is accomplishing all these different things, we see again and again she is finding favor. Esther 2.17 is kind of the, the, the pinnacle of all this. It says, The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. This word favor is one that appears throughout the Old Testament. I did, I did a word study on it this, this afternoon. And, and, and what you find is that this word favor is often connected to God. When, when we see that someone finds favor, it has much less to do with them 
had much more to do with God, who is the one bestowing the favor. So what we see God doing and the author of Esther doing throughout this story, every time we see Esther advance a rung, we're always reminded she found favor. We're reminded that this wasn't Esther being so beautiful. This wasn't Esther just, just making herself great. This was God working in her life and on her behalf. We see that the main character in the story of Esther is not Esther herself. The main character in the story of Esther is really God. God is the one advancing her. God's the one making her grow through the ranks. God is the one working on her behalf. It's no coincidence that Esther becomes the person she does. It's no coincidence that Esther reaches the, the, great, the great reaches of power in the throne. It's no wonder she has God working on her behalf. She has favor working for her. See, our culture would say, if you want to be worthy, you need to be successful. You need to make yourself worthy. And God would say, no, I am the one who makes you worthy. I am the one who bestows favor. I am the one who advances you. Another lie that our culture will tell us, social worthiness. You must be important. If you want to be worthy, if you want to be valuable, if you want to matter, you have to be an important person. You matter because you know the right people. You matter because you're with the in crowd. This is a lie that your friends and your social media will tell you every single day. They'll say that you need to wear this product or this brand. You need to buy this gadget and this thing. If you want to really be important, you need to listen to this music. If you want to matter, if you want to be valuable, if you want me to care about what you think and what you say, then you need to act like this. You need to go to, to these parties. You need to hang out with these people. You need to use this kind of vocabulary instead of language. And if you don't, you're irrelevant. You're not important. Even in, in some parts of the church, oh, Connie is a Christian now, so, so you should be a Christian too. It, it's cool now. It, it's, it's now relevant. This, this is just the lie of social worthiness. That, that if you want to be important, you need to, you, you, you need to jump on this bandwagon and become important. You need to join these people. We have another character in the book of Esther who is the, the definition of social worthiness. It's this character by the name of, of Haman. In Esther chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, we see it says, After these things... King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Haman was filled with fury. Haman is this example of, of, of social worthiness. The, the person who says, hey, you want to be important? You, you, need to, you need to get with the public officials. You need to, to get along. You need to bow down to me. You need, I, I, I'm the big man. I'm the one that matters. Haman is the man who, who has, has been given the favor of the king. He's, he's like the king's right man. He's the king's signet ring, the king's credit card, so to speak. 
If he wants to say something and make something a law, he can put the king's ring on it. He has much power. Mordecai gives us this example of the proper response. Refusing to bow, literally. Refusing to bow to societal pressure to neglect his faith. Mordecai is a Jew. He's not going to bow for anyone but God. And, and he rightly, in this case, decides that, that he's going to make a stand for what he believes in. He's going to stand for his faith. He's going to stand for truth. He's not going to bow to this social pressure, social worthiness. Mordecai gives us an example of how to respond to this cultural lie. The third lie that our culture tells us is, is this idea of practical worthiness. If you want to be important, you must be useful. If you want to be important, you must be useful. The idea here is that other people can decide how much you're worth. Other people can give you your value. In the ancient Near East culture, this is regularly the case for women. Women are property. Women are very much second-class citizens. Women are given value by the man whose arm they are on. Women receive their value and their importance from kind of the world around them and how successful their husband is. God regularly turns the system on its head, taking women who are of no significance in their culture and their society and, and, and promoting them into incredible positions of power. The entire book of Esther is sent against this ideal. We have this, this woman who has is, who is no significance, ha, has no parents, ha, ha, has no other kind of important relatives, just her cousin Mordecai in the court. And God takes her from all the women, from all, from all the people in the land, and he promotes her to this position of worthiness, this position of queen. Esther is, is, is set against this idea of, of social worthiness, practical worthiness, I'm sorry, practical worthiness. Thankfully, this isn't the norm for most members of our society, women or otherwise. Thankfully, we, we don't as often as we used to, we don't as often judge people based on how useful they are to us. But there have been times in our past when this has been the case. I mean, you, we can think back to, to even things like slavery, where people were only valuable because they could produce crops or they could, make, they, they could produce things in, in the home or we could, we could get their labor. I, I think at times we've, we've valued immigrants because they will do the jobs that no one else wants to do and they're useful to us and so we'll give them some value for that reason. Today, I, I think the, the highest tragedy and, and the biggest stain and the place that our country is most guilty of this is an abortion. That because a baby is not useful to me, I'm going to, to kill it. I'm going to end its life. Because, because it's not going to help me. It's not practical. And, and abortion is this terrible stain on our country's moral ethos. It's a tragedy of the highest magnitude that those who present themselves as individuals who care the most for the poor and the voiceless would, in the same breath, advocate for the murder of the poorest and those least able to speak for themselves. I, I, I think we are very much guilty of, of this sin and this lie. Queen Vashti is an example that we get in the book of Esther as, as someone who is only valuable when they're useful. She's useful to the king, and the moment she stops being useful, She's removed from her position. In Esther chapter 1, verse 10, we're told that on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha 
Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. See, Queen Vashti was told she had value because she was useful. She was useful for sensual pleasure. Bring her out and have everyone come and gawk at her and look at her beauty and, and examine how, how great she is and how beautiful she is. She's useful for sexual pleasure for the king. But the moment that this stops being the case, the moment that, that she begins to be less than useful, the moment that she begins to present a, a threat of sorts to the crown, she's quickly disposed of. She's no longer important. Our culture tells us that, that human worth can come from ourselves. Our culture tells us that human worth can come from our society. Our, our culture tells us our, our worthiness can come from our usefulness. What scripture would tell us, and what the Bible would present, is that true worthiness comes from God. True worthiness is found only because God determines that we are worthy. Last week we talked about the Imago Dei, the image of God. This idea that everyone, man and, and woman, was created in God's image, created by God, and, and, and therefore, because we're created by God, because we're formed in, him, in His image, we have inherent value. We have inherent importance. We have inherent worthiness. These things come from God, not from anywhere else. You have value, but your value does not come from you. Your value does not come from the situation you are placed in. Your importance does not come from the circumstances around you. Your importance comes because God created you. Your importance is there because God said you were important. You matter because God said you matter. Others matter because God said that they matter. See, you can't remove or add to your own value, no matter how hard you try, no matter how many things you do or get involved in, no matter how many mistakes you make, no matter how successful you are. No matter how high you climb in the world, you cannot make yourself any more valuable. You cannot make yourself any less valuable than you already are created in the image of God. God has given you value. This means you don't get to define yourself. God has already defined you. We can see this immediately applicable in the realm of, of sexuality today. Our, our culture would say that I can determine for myself my sexual identity. This is not what God says. God says, I, I, I created men and women in my image, male and female. I created them. This is God speaking. God determines sexual identity, not me. We want to define ourselves in morality. We, we, we want to decide what is good and what is evil, what is right and wrong. But I don't get to do that. I don't get to decide for myself whether or not what, I, what I'm doing is proper. God decided that. God determines right and wrong. I'm not the ultimate judge of my life. I, I don't get to decide what my truth is. I don't get to decide what my reality is. God has already determined that. Human dignity is defined by God because we're in the image of God. We have dignity because God says we have dignity. We have worthiness because God says it's there. So, so you don't have a say in whether or not you have value. You, you, you don't have any choice in the matter. You are valuable whether you feel like it or not. This, this is just a truth that, that we need to understand and remember. 
Whether or not I feel important, whether or not I feel valuable, whether or not I feel worthy, God has already determined my worthiness. And so I don't get to decide my own worthiness and my own value. Regardless of how worthless I may feel, God has determined that my life has worth and my life has value. I feel like someone needs to hear that. I I, I don't know who, but I just feel like someone needs to to hear that your worth is not dependent on how you feel or, or what other people say it is. It's determined on what God said. That God's truth is, is true truth. At the end of the day, worthiness is not about you. Worthiness is about God. We look to Esther chapter 4, verse 13. The decree has been given by the king. All the Jews are to be killed and, and destroyed. Their, their nation is to, to be wiped out. And, and they're, they're hopeless. They're looking for some sort of escape, some sort of, uh, of, of way out of all this. And Mordecai comes to Esther, hopeless, hoping this, this is his last chance. He comes to Esther saying, hey, can you go to the king? Can, can you just plead on, on my behalf, on the behalf of your people? You are a Jew. These are your people that are threatened, not just me. And, and there's a law in the land that if someone approaches the king's throne without being invited, the sentence is death. No exceptions. Well, only one exception. If the king raises his scepter and finds pleasure in you, then you can approach. But, but this is a very dangerous thing that Mordecai is asking Esther to do. He's asking her to risk her life. He's asking her to risk her position, to risk everything that she has, to, 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 to do something that may not even work. And at the end of the day, she, no one knows she's a Jew. She, she could escape this with... With, with nothing, and, and this I think is the key verse of the, the whole book of Esther, Esther four, thirteen. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther is in this position because God has put her in this position. Esther's worthy for this position because God has said she's worthy for this position. She's here for just a time as this. See, Esther wasn't special, Esther was available. Esther wasn't special. Esther was available. A lot of times we can look at life and we can look at the things ahead of us. We can look at God's plan for our lives and feel that, man, I just, I don't have what they had. I, I, I didn't have the uh, privilege is a big conversation in our culture and our politics right now. We can say, well, I didn't have the same privilege that so-and-so had. I, I didn't have the same opportunities that they did. I I, I wasn't as special as they were. I wasn't given the same, the same leg up. Well, well the great truth of, of Scripture and the great truth of, of God's promise is that y- you don't have to have any sort of privilege. You don't have to have any sort of special talents to yourself. All you have to do is be willing to be used by God. All you have to do is be willing to be available. Be someone that God can use. If Esther had stepped down, and I firmly believe this, and I think this this is what the Bible teaches, if Esther had not done this, there would have been another. 
someone else would have come. Deliverance would arise from another place. Esther was used because she was the one who was willing to step up and say, okay, here I am. Send me. Here I am, Lord. Use me. And I wonder in our lives if we would have the same mentality. If we would look at, at the circumstances in our lives that seem so hopeless and, and, and beyond repair, and I wonder if we would look at them with the same heart and mind as Esther, and we'd say, here I am, Lord. Use me. Send me. I am available. I am willing. God is not looking for capable people. God is not looking for, for special people. God is not looking for these perfect, ready, prepared people. He's looking for available people. In your life, are you available to be used by God? Are you positioning yourself in such a way in your heart, in your mind, in your practices? Are you positioning yourself in a way that would make yourself available to God? Or are you so focused on yourself are you so focused on the world around you? Are you so focused on your day-to-day -day activities that, that you have no care or concern for the plan of God for your life? That you have no care or concern for the plan of God for your family, for your school, for your friends? See, Esther could have very easily just, just ignored all of this. She could have said, no, I'm fine where I'm at. I'm queen. I, I, I got this court tomorrow. I got this dinner next week. I have this function she could have very easily just, just ignored the whole thing. But she's willing to stop. She's willing to make herself available. Would you do the same in your life? As, as we finish here, by way of application, I want to focus on, on a couple ways that Esther makes herself available. A couple things that Esther does in her life to make herself available to be used by God. The first thing is, Esther is obedient. Esther is obedience. I didn't put the scriptures in there, but throughout Esther chapter 2, Esther chapter 3, and Esther chapter 4, we, we get so many instances where we see Esther obeyed Mordecai. And, and, and this is a, a relatively simple thing, but it's interesting that the Bible highlights it over and again. And Esther did as Mordecai asked. And Esther did as Mordecai said. And Esther obeyed Mordecai. Esther again and again and again is obedience. She's obedient to, to, to someone who's seemingly unfit to be obeyed. See, see when we, we look at Mordecai's life, if you look at the name Mordecai, the name actually means worshiper of Marduk. The, the Marduk is this Babylonian god who was it, one of the primary gods in the, the pantheon of Persia. There were kind of two main gods, Ishtar and Marduk. And, and Marduk is this, this, this false deity. And Mordecai's name means worshiper of Marduk. I, the Bible gives us a hint here that Mordecai is not this perfectly righteous man. Mordecai is, is not this, this priestly, incredible guy. Mordecai is someone who has kind of assimilated some of, some of the Persian culture and tradition. He's, he's, he's a Jew, sure. He, he's, he's faithful to God, but he's also mixed in some of the local religion and, and customs. And we would look at Mordecai and say, man, he's not someone that we should follow or listen to. And yet, Esther does. Someone who, who's seemingly unfit to be obeyed, Esther obeys him. Esther recognizes that God has put someone in authority over her life. 
God has, has put someone over her to, to care for her and, and nurture her. Mordecai is this father figure. And so she has chosen to obey him, even though some parts of his life would make him seem that he, he's not worthy to be obeyed. She recognizes the authority that God has put over her life. This is how she makes herself available. I wonder, do you recognize the authority that God has put over your life? Do you recognize the authorities that God has put in place? Whether that is, is parents or, or guardians, whether that's maybe a teacher, your, your pastors, these different authorities, and I see the looks, I see the looks, these authority figures that God has put. And they are not perfect authority figures, I get it. Mom and dad have problems. Your third period math teacher is a jerk, I know. And yet, Mordecai, who is, who's not a perfect parent, he's, he's not this perfect individual, we're told by his name he has some flaws, he has some issues, and yet Esther recognizes God has put this person in authority over me, and so I am going to obey him. Esther looks even further, she looks to the culture around her, she looks to the world around her, and there are customs and practices within the Persian court, and she says, I'm going to follow those customs and practices. I'm going to go to the king and wait for him to extend his scepter in the ways that she talks with King Ahasuerus, in the ways that she responds to Haman and to Mordecai. She follows these court proceedings. She looks at the laws of her land and says, I'm going to be obedient to the law of my land. She recognizes the authority that, that God has put. Even when these things don't seem worthy of it, even when she's in a foreign culture where, where maybe some of the Persian laws are different than Jewish laws, she says, I'm gonna respect the law of the land. I'm gonna respect the authorities that God has put in my life. Even when people don't seem worthy of authority or worthy of respect, we, we can at least honor the position, right? So, so maybe, let's make this practical. Maybe there's a teacher that is just, he is, I can't use that word, he is not a great person. He's got some problems. He's a jerk. He's a loser. Okay, he's a tough guy to honor, but the position that he holds is a position of authority. So you can honor the position even if you can't honor the person. This is relevant even to, to, to our politics right now. Regardless of what you think of different elected officials, they hold a position that deserves respect and honor. Even if you don't like the person, you need to honor the position. For parents or guardians, even if, even if they have some problems, God has installed them as your parents. They are worthy of honor because God says they are. Are you willing to obey? Are you willing to position yourself in a position of obedience? Are you going to live in rebellion to the word of God? This, this is the option that we are given. This is what it means to be used by God. You wonder, why is God not moving in my life? Why is God not using me for things? Well, are you obedient? Are you willing to, to submit yourself? Because if you're not gonna obey, and this is why obedience matters, just, just in, in, the, in the long-term scale, if you can't obey your parents, you will be unable to obey God. If you are unable to obey this, this, this simple authority structure in the family, you will be unable to obey God. And someone who is unable to be, obey God is unfit to be used by God. So this is a big deal. This isn't just, man, I'm just gonna get through it for 18 years and I'll be out of the house and I'll be on my own. No, if you can't learn this lesson now, it will cause problems for your entire life. If you cannot learn obedience when you are under the authority of your parents, you will not learn obedience when you're under the authority of God. 
You will come under the discipline of God just like you will come under the discipline of your parents. This stuff matters. God wants willing, available people. Will you make yourself available? Honoring your parents looks like speaking and thinking highly of them. Honoring people looks like speaking and thinking highly of them. What kind of words do you use when you talk about authority figures in your life? What kind of words do you use in the halls at school when you're talking about your teacher? What kind of words do you use with your friends when you're talking about your parents? What kind of words do you use when you're talking about government officials? This is very convicting for me. For those of you who have had conversations with me outside of church and off the stage, I, I struggle to do this at times. I struggle to speak and think highly of positions and, and people in positions. This is something I need to do more and more faithfully. This is something that we can grow in in our obedience. The second thing that Esther does is Esther is courageous. Esther is courageous. There are real stakes in the game that Esther is playing. There are real stakes in, in kind of the gamble that she's making. This is not just a, if it doesn't go right, people might make fun of you. This is no, she could lose her life. This is, this is a life or death situation. And yet Esther is courageous. She's willing to stand up for, for what she believes to be true. I, I, I didn't get this, this verse in. But uh, after, after she decides to go to the king in Esther chapter 4, she says in Esther chapter 4, starting in verse 16, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, I and my young women will fast also as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. Listen to these words. And if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. This is the heart that Esther has. This, this is the, the way that she, she sets herself. If I perish, I perish. This is, this is real courage. This is real courage. Real courage re- requires some danger. True courage requires some boldness in the faith of, of real and true danger. This is someone who says, I'm not afraid. Even though my life is at stake, if I perish, I perish. I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to stand up for what's right. I'm willing to take a risk in my life. This is how Esther makes herself available. And I wonder if, if we are willing to have the same kind of courage. Admittedly, the stakes are a little bit lower for us, for now, at least if you take a stand for Jesus, you, you might get a few laughs, but you're probably not going to lose your life. And, and I don't say this to minimize the, the, the risk that you take. I don't, I don't say this to minimize the courage that it takes to stand up for Christ on your, on your campus or in your family. But, but I say this to encourage you that, hey, you are not, you're not facing the same stakes Esther did. Even if, like, even, what could, what could go wrong? Okay, they laugh. Okay, they make some jokes okay, maybe you don't get invited to, to the same parties that you used to. Okay, is, is that going to kill you? Are you going to lose your life? But would we approach these things with the same heart and the same mind that Esther does and say, if I perish, I perish. I, I will stand up for truth. I will stand up for righteousness, even if it costs me everything, if it costs me my, my position, 
if it costs me my popularity, if it costs me the friends that I have, because those things don't determine my worth. Those things don't determine my value. God does. And the way I stand for Christ is what really matters. The, the way I stand for my faith is what really matters. Make a stand for your faith even if it costs you everything. Even your life. Even your life. I know there's some of you in this room who feel called to missions. I, I hope that we all would consider that call to, to, to give our lives and sacrifice our lives for the gospel if necessary. I, I'm reminded of a story that I heard of a boy in the Middle East who was, I, I don't know how old, he was young, under the age of 12, and, and he was being beaten by, by the Muslim officials in his country because he was a professing Christian. He, he was in this place where following Christ could cost him his life. And, and as they're beating him and, and, and now pulling out a gun and, and commanding him, renounce Christ or, or we're gonna kill you, he says, I'm so very afraid, so very terrified, but I cannot renounce my Savior, even as afraid as I am. And they shot him five times in the stomach. He lay there bleeding on the ground. This is the risk that, that he's willing to take. Are you willing to take the same risk? Are you willing to have the same courage for Christ? To say, even if I lose my life, even if I lose it all, I'm gonna stand for Christ. And if you sit here and say, yeah, I'm willing to do that, then how much more can we stand up in front of our friends and, and speak truth into their lives? How much more can we stand up in, in front of even those who, who we fear, even those who we don't like, and, and speak truth and, and proclaim the gospel boldly and, and, and love boldly and, and even simple things like <laughs> inviting people to trademark. These are, these are things that require a bit of courage. And so if you're willing to say, man, I'll, I'll take a bullet to the stomach, how much more would you be willing to say, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take a laugh or I'll take a rejection? These, these are ways that, that we make ourselves available. God is wanting to move in your life. God is wanting to use you. God, God, is, God has, a, has, a, has a plan for your life. He has, he has a, a destiny for you. I, I've said it before, we're all called into full-time ministry. Some of us may not be called to stand on a stage and, and preach and speak. Many of us may be called to just go work in a workplace or, or be in the home with children. But in every calling, God has called you into ministry. God has called you to do the work of his kingdom. Esther gives us an example of what this can look like. Esther is not a preacher. Esther is not an evangelist or a pastor. Esther is simply doing what God has called her to do. It's, it's a glamorous position that God has called Esther to. He may not call you to the same glamorous position, but God has called you somewhere. And wherever you are, God is looking for people who are willing to be available willing to be used. See, God wants to move in your family. God wants to move in your school. God wants to move among your friends and among the people you know. More than that, God will move. God will act. God will bring to himself every person whom he has called. But will you be a part of it? Will you be a participant in it? God wants you to be a part. God is inviting you, take part in my story. Take part in the things that I'm doing in the world. Take part in the work that I'm working. Will you make yourself available? Will you be obedient? Will you be courageous? This is what it means to be worthy. This is what it means to be a worthy person. Our culture would tell us worthiness comes from ourselves. Worthiness comes from our importance. Worthiness comes from our usefulness. 
The story of Esther combats these notions and these ideas. The story of Esther tells us that that Esther is a worthy woman. Esther's not a worthy woman because she is some outstanding individual. She's not a worthy woman because she's well-connected or important or significant in and of herself. But she's a worthy woman because she's made herself available to be used by God. And because she makes herself available, God uses her for powerful things to save her nation, to save her people. We can pattern ourselves after her example. We can make ourselves available to God through obedience and courage. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways that it teaches us and shapes us and molds us. Lord, thank you for examples like Esther. Thank you for examples of common people called into uncommon things. Lord, I pray that we would see the example that you've placed before us and that we would answer your call into an uncommon life, into a worthy life. Lord, Lord, I pray that we would recognize that our worth does not come from ourselves. Pray that we'd understand our worth does not come from the world around us or, or, or the people around us. Our worth does not come from how useful we are, but our worth comes because you say we are worthy. We're created in your image, given your worth, given your value. Lord, I pray that like Esther, we would make ourselves available to be used by you. We would make ourselves worthy people. Lord, I pray that we would become obedient in areas of our lives that we need to be obedient. Pray that we'd be obedient to the authorities that you have placed over us. Pray that we'd be obedient to your word, that that we would diligently fight sin in our lives. Pray that we would be courageous in, in the areas that you've given us, that we would courageously stand for truth even if it costs us everything. We would courageously give the call of Christ. We would courageously even in invitations to church and invitations to have people be a part of this community. Lord, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. We love you. It's for your beautiful name and your glorious fame that we pray. Amen. Amen.